teaching. Well, you're between a rock and a hard place, aren't you? There's the children, getting the best out of them. And there's the parents. And there's the hours and the rates of pay. But still, thousands of New Zealanders do it for a living, day in and day out. And the other evening, some of the best were handed out a few awards for carrying the torch high, which happened to be the school motto of my old high school. One of them is my first guest of the week, Christopher War, who won the Supreme Teaching Innovation Award for his approach to the classroom at Mount Aspiring College in Wanaka, which turns the usual power structure on its head. And Christopher's on the line from somewhere near the Southern Alps now. Kia ora, Christopher, and congratulations. Thank you very much. What do you teach and what age range for the kids? I teach English um, from ages about 14 to 18, so year 10 to year 13. Right. Your approach, which according to the um, awards information, was turning power structures on its head. Can you, can you elaborate, Christopher? I can. Uh, I think there's lots of ways we do that. It was it was amusing to hear you make a reference to um, the Lord of the Flies, and I thought I would mention that on the island there weren't any adults. There's still adults in my classroom, so I'm still there in the mix. But the <laughs> that is um, a very that is a very good point, Christopher. Well made. And there's and there are other books we uh, study, like The Wave, where the adults uh, let the power get to their head. So <laughs> I think it's more that that I'm trying to guard against, and. It, it, certainly one of the things I'd want to say about what we do is we still uh, privilege the professional skills of the teacher and we're not suggesting that students can learn for themselves or that they are that, that they have knowledge that it surpasses ours in the curriculum because that's definitely our expertise but there are things that students also know a lot about and some of those things are what they like and what they are enthusiastic about and when they're ready to be assessed and so our systems are about allowing the students to make choices over those things. They get to select their teacher and course rather than us determining those things for them. And they they uh, have say in things like the timing and nature of the assessments that they sit and things like that. What else do they have a say in? Well, once you start giving students the opportunity to express their point of view, they start to do it at all sorts of moments in time. And so I think what happens is the culture changes. Especially, for example, when as a teacher, I don't have the security of having a provided class. I have to make sure that my courses are attractive to the students and their families. And in doing that, I'm essentially making everything up for discussion. And so I try and deliver on the promises I make each year. And so do my colleagues in my department because we all work this way. And if we don't, then the students will start giving us feedback on that. And it's, it's direct feedback. It's in, it's in the, the daily interactions in the classroom. Okay, so if, for example, you didn't attract students to your courses, you wouldn't have anyone to teach? You wouldn't have a job? Is it as black and white as that? Well, I think it would be you'd have a job, but it would be quite an easy one for at least one year. Uh, certainly the classes in our, our subject are different sizes because some courses are more attractive to students than others. And, and so the courses or the teachers with a smaller number of selections learn a lot from that. Obviously, we do put ourselves at risk. But what's great is that each of us has something to offer and each student has its own individual needs. And between us, we come to what usually works out to be a really nice compromise. And of course, if you do have fewer students choosing you, then you do become very alert to what it is that is preventing them from wanting to be in your course. Because one thing's for certain, they do take the choice seriously and they are 
uh, only really determined to ensure that they learn well. What do you think drives the choices of the students? Well, we've asked them a lot of questions about that, actually, and they come back pretty universally with a sort of a set of three primary reasons. One is they choose based on the culture of the classroom that the teacher creates and the relationships that they feel they have with that teacher. But they also choose on the course content because we all teach very different material. And so they choose based on something that might interest them or, or that they feel that would be a good challenge. And also they can see because the courses are all laid out before them, which courses have what level of challenge. And often they'll just select on the basis of the level of challenge that they feel ready or enthusiastic to put themselves up for. Do you ever feel you're in some kind of a popularity contest with your fellow teachers? Pick me! I, I think that the um, if you were to feel like that, you'd quickly learn that it wasn't a great avenue to follow. We've found that, the, that any teacher that's tried to kind of make a popular offer Either it, either it will fall flat because the students are fairly savvy and they're certainly much more clear about than we are about what might be cool. But also what they value in us as teachers is actually our professional expertise. They, they want us to, to play the role well and to teach them well and to provide strong courses. They, 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 the, that matter of the popular teacher actually I think comes about when the students aren't empowered to make these choices and the only thing they really have to be able to make a comment on is is, is the nature of the teacher. Here they're looking into it a lot more deeply and because they're in control then they make the, seri- the, the decision based on a series of factors that they have that control over. It sounds more like the situation that one would face at university in terms of does that course suit me, does that course suit what where I'm going, the kind of stuff I want to know. It's, it seems to me you're almost bringing um, 101, course level, uh, 101 course level approach from university down to secondary school level. I think that could be a good comparison, except, of course, that everybody who chooses English in our department does you know, NCEA English, so they do the mainstream course. It's just through a very different lens and in a very different style. So in the end, they're all going to end up being assessed by very similar tools and they're going to end up with very similar qualifications, but they're going to go about it quite different ways. How does it work in practice in terms of of how the day is structured? When I was at high school, you had a pretty, you had set times and you got into trouble if you weren't there in time and you had what, about 50 minutes per period, as they used to be called. What happens then? You had six periods in a day. What happens now? Well, our, stru- our school structure is exactly the same. So what we're talking about, because we're, we're a single department within a larger school, is that we're, we're talking about this sort of uh, shifting of the locus of control happening within those English times. And so they do their normal timetable. Although... If the course is interesting enough and they enjoy the class enough, you find they don't tend to turn up late. What's the response been from your fellow teachers? Is the whole school taking this approach? No, the whole school's not taking this approach. It's it's something that's done only in the English department. And uh, because we've been doing it for a while now, people who uh, choose to come and work f- with us often do so on the basis that we work this way. It's pretty empowering for an English teacher to have the autonomy to design their own courses. So there's some benefit to a teacher. And because we teach a subject that's largely compulsory for everybody, we're used to finding ourselves with groups of students in front of us who have had none of that choice. And so it's it's actually quite a wonderful thing for an English teacher to stand in front of a group of people and know that they all chose you. 
has there been a clash of cultures in this in the teacher staff room in terms of the way you're doing it and the way other departments might be teaching? Uh, yes. <laughs> But that's, that's healthy. That's one of the things that's good in a school, isn't it? Yeah, we, yeah. We have diverse you, ways of doing it. And you have quite vigorous discussions sometimes? And we battle it out. That's right. What about the response? One, no, carry on. Oh, no, I was just going to say one of the things that's been an advantage to me is this um, this Excellence in Teaching Award because it, it, it kind of fuels my argument a little bit, so I'm very happy about it. Tell me a bit more about the results in terms of of whether you think that you've got children, sorry, kids, because you're dealing with teenagers, performing better than they otherwise would because of this approach? Well, I've been, I've, I've worked in this way in a couple of schools, and um, in every case, there's been a distinct and statistically significant improvement in student achievement over the years. So I think we can prove it pretty well, certainly on a local basis empirically. It's quite hard to argue with the benefit of having students make choices about what they want to learn. And then, of course, once they've made that choice, they're then asked to um, deliver on the, their side of the deal, and that is to pay attention and take an interest and be determined. And, th- and, and I think that transaction makes a lot of sense to students. I'm speaking to the Supreme Teacher Award winner, Teacher Innovation Award winner for 2020, Christopher War. He teaches English at Mount Aspiring College in Wanaka. And one of the key things about the way he does things, Christopher does things, is that the the um, the teachers, the teacher hands over quite a lot of the power to the students in terms of of what they do, what they study. In terms of of interest in literature, do you think this also works better than you being the sole source of of whatever it is you're going to teach? I think one of the ways that it does work better for us is that it's that side of it that every teacher is teaching their best work. So we're all devising programs that are the best we can come up with, and we have total freedom to do that. So as long as it covers um, the relevant bases on the curriculum, we can choose any text, any film, any creative writing process, and we can we stitch it all together around genre investigations or theme investigations. And in doing that, teachers are teachers become really highly engaged in that side of the job, which is, of course, this is the professional aspect of the role, is designing programs of learning and putting them together in ways that illuminate the texts and make them exciting. And so I think the students are getting, a, a, they're selecting between some pretty awesome options, actually. And each teacher stands in front of them in love with what they have to teach. And I know that's characteristic of English teachers anyway, but we get that at, at a higher level because we have all that choice ourselves. So I guess while students are empowered, and that control is passed on to them. We're also experiencing great freedom ourselves. What are some of the works they're asking for? So they seem to, well, in our experience, they like the classics. So there's a lot of courses that contain components of Shakespeare and a lot of 20th century literature. You know, at the moment, things like George Orwell's 1984 and uh um, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale are, are having a resurgence. And so they they feature in a lot of the courses we offer. And then we just find ways of uh, connecting those to more contemporary work and showing how the, 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 the resonances are continuing through the, through the centuries. What about poets? The poets, uh, apart from the students themselves? <laughs> mm, right, yes. Well, so that, yeah. that's one thing. 
getting them yeah, writing. So, I mean, everything what, we do, there we, are... try, we try and switch it around. If, if, there's a, if we study a dystopian genre text, then we ask the students to start generating their own dystopias, looking at some of the preoccupations we have today. And the poetry that we study is quite diverse, but it's one of the areas in English where we can often refer locally. And so many of the teachers are, are, are become quite fluent and, and have quite an extensive knowledge of local poets and we and, and that's a great opportunity for us to make sure that, that that those voices are also represented in the curriculum. Christopher, I don't often have an award-winning English teacher on nights and I know there'll be a few people who are listening who'll be wondering things like, well, what about the fact that the young people of today don't seem to know where to put their apostrophes or their commas or or capital letters or, or basics of grammar that we, we were we took for granted. How important is that stuff? Or is that actually stuff that we should stop worrying about and just hand over to algorithms to look after for us now? Oh, no, I, I would consider it to be as vital as it's ever been. I, I, the, I, th- I think the difference is that the approach that we take to it may be a little different. And while I, any English teacher in New Zealand system would agree that students having an understanding of the mechanics of language so that they can be effective communicators is a vital part of the job, and I, I, I have no argument with that. The approach we might take to exploring grammar might be a little different to the rules-based systems of the 60s and 70s, or I guess the 70s and 80s where the kind of rules were not really paid attention to. I don't remember studying grammar myself, but what we do now is we look at grammar and the way we look at every aspect of text as a as a tool for a writer to use for effect. So they have to they have to become highly fluent in grammatical effects in order not only to write accurately, but also to to be able to use the nuances of grammar to really empower their writing and speech. So, and, and that's where the students become really engaged by it. They, they, it stops being simply a set of rules that must be learned to being uh, a, an insight into language that they can employ for their own advantage and for the advantage of others. What's the response been from parents? Well, you give parents a little bit of choice and they're generally pretty happy. So <laughs> one of the one of the the research that sits behind this has always said that one of the most um, most powerful influences on outcomes for students is the teacher. And of course that that's there's so much logic in that it doesn't take a lot of research to prove it. But at the same time parents in the past haven't had any ability to influence who teaches their children. And in our system, they, they through their child or working with their, their son or daughter, they can um, actually have make that choice. And so if they have a teacher that they want their son, daughter or, 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 or child to be in front of, then they can influence that now. It gives them a lot of power to uh, b- both be interested, but also to influence how their ch- children are taught. And schools don't usually provide that facility. Yes. And I think that's where sometimes this is considered to be a bit countercultural. If Christopher, if parents aren't supportive of their child's need to learn, can a teacher make a difference? I I, I understand the the words you're saying, but I I can't recall an experience I've had in my 18 years of teaching where I've encountered a parent who's not interested in their child's learning. I, I we might not always agree on on what priorities of learning there should be, but. Parents are interested in their children's thriving livelihood. What are you going to be teaching tomorrow? Oh, the, how much, I, you, I need more than 17 minutes for that. I'll never stop. And I've only <laughs> given you about 60 seconds. So, in, What in, authors? In 
So we're, we're look, one of the things I'm really looking forward to tomorrow is that I've been away for a couple of days because I was in Wellington for this award and I'm getting back to my class and one of them has been making some progress on reading the book Thief by Marcus Zusak and we're exploring the kind of surreal element of the narrator of death and talking about what that brings to the um, reader in terms of our trust of what's being said in the text and I know that they'll have read through some parts where their confidence in what the narrator says is going to be quite undermined and I can't wait to hear what they have to say about that. They, they always bring something to the text that I hadn't thought of and I find it really exciting. Christopher, it's been lovely talking with you. Congratulations. Um, have a Thank lovely you. day tomorrow. Will do. Thanks very much. Thank you. Christopher War. he teaches English at Mount Aspiring College in Wanaka. He won this year's ASG Innovation Award. Now ASG I think stands for, well, it's just National Excellence in Teaching Awards. And his award was for innovation as a teacher.